1: I used to spend a lot of time around slow-pitch softball. Growing up in rural Arizona, there is not much to do, so it was a large part of my life. At one point during my teenage years, I was on three different teams. I worked at the field when I wasn't playing, and even when I wasn't working or playing, I seemed to be there anyways. One evening, there had been an unusual number of home runs hit over the right-field fence. If hit just right, the balls would clear the fence, bounce off of the street just on the other side, and sail into a small patch of trees that sat on a vacant lot. They were quickly running out of game balls, and I was sent to go retrieve some of them from the trees. I had done it what felt like a hundred times and nonchalantly walked through the area searching for the large leather red-stitched balls trying to find as many as I could. That's when I saw them, a pair of legs jutting out of a tall patch of grass. Dirty jeans fell loosely around bare feet. The body lay half in and half out of the green foliage. I froze. My young mind began to race as adrenaline filled my entire system and yet my feet remained frozen to the ground. I began to look around, search for the fastest way out of my predicament when I saw... the second body. Long dark tangled hair completely covered the face, arms splayed out over the weed covered dirt. The white shirt the body wore was streaked and stained. I was terrified, convinced that I had stumbled across a murder scene and maybe, the killer, was still there. Hyperventilating, I looked over my shoulder just knowing that whoever had done this was coming for me next. Then, the first body moved. The blacked out drunk readjusted, getting slightly more comfortable before becoming motionless again. That's when things finally started to click into place. There were beer cans everywhere. Two shredded cardboard cases, the red, white, and blue packaging scattered all over the ground. They weren't dead bodies left here by some psycho, they were two drunks passed out in the dirt on a Friday evening. Still unnerved, I grabbed the game balls I could see and returned to the announcer's booth at the park where someone called the police and ten minutes later, I watched from the distance as two of the men were escorted handcuffed and stumbling to the patrol cars. But, to this day I still remember the incident, still remember the colors, the way the dying light came through the trees. I remember the panic and the fear. I can only imagine what it would have been like if it was all… real. If the worst-case scenario that my mind instantly made had actually played out. I can only imagine what it would be like to stumble upon a real crime scene, a real murder. How long would that stay with me? And how often would it wake me up at night? I hope to never find out. This week, we talk about a case where body after body just kept turning up. A case that left police stumped and citizens scared. A case that will teach you to stay away from the bad parts of town no matter how interesting and mysterious they seem to be. This week, we tell a tale about a psycho who had zero regard for the dead. We talk about a killer that saw people as playthings. Mere walking, talking experiments. This week, we talk about the Cleveland Torso Murders, aka the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. As always, I'm Chase Ellerman, and this is Almost Fiction.
0: Chapter 1. Cleveland Was Growing For the past ten years, it
1: had seen exponential growth, especially in the industrial and manufacturing sectors. Immigrants seemed to pour into the place to find work at new factories that offered them a taste of the American dream. Many millionaires were created during this time, and they seemed to band together building an extravagant neighborhood called Millionaire's Row. Money seemed to flow into the area, and because of this, new educational centers as well as cultural institutions popped up around the city. Times were... good. Then, came the Great Depression. In 1929, the bottom seemed to fall out from everyone. Jobs were lost factories closed, the once-thriving city began to suffer. People worried about their homes, their jobs, their families. Everyday luxuries disappeared, weekend vacations, nights out, even things like new shoes. People began to worry if they would even be able to put food on their table.
0: Then, finally, things were starting to look up. Five years had crawled by, and the
1: economic outlook began to brighten for everyone in the entire city.
0: Well, almost the entire city.
1: Kingsbury Run was the worst part of town. It was a place of last resort, the place you ended up when you had nowhere else to go, when the world fell out from underneath you. Piles of trash and human feces littered the always wet ground. Broken glass glittered in the orange light from the sporadically placed fires built for their meager warmth. The nice part, though, about the cold nights was at least it cut down on the smell that permeated everything. The, quote, hobo jungle, unquote, took up the greater part of the run, as the locals called it. It was dark, cold, and miserable. The only place in the city worse than the Roaring Third, an area just east of town known for its bars, brothels, flop houses, and gambling dens. The Roaring Third was the final step before the bottom. The final step before you hit the run.
0: September, 1934
1: The nameless young man was walking the shores of Lake Erie not far from Kingsbury Run. He never said why he was there, but that really wasn't important because he found a body. At first, he second-guessed himself, questioned his own mind as he walked closer and closer to the thing on the shore.
0: It looked like a mannequin. Maybe some of the
1: pieces had broken off as it floated in the lake. It was the wrong color to be real. It was a pale red. But as he walked closer, he began to notice more details. The marks on the skin. The wrinkles. The hair. He tried not to throw up as the smell hit him. It was something else, something different than the putrid smell of garbage that usually filled the air. His brain was reeling, trying to catch up to what his eyes were seeing. For a moment, he desperately still clung to the hope that this wasn't real, but it was.
0: Where were the legs? The arms the head.
1: He ran. AJ Purse, the Cuyahoga County Coroner, took in the torso. The arms had been amputated at the shoulders, the legs just below the knees, and it was missing its head. The woman appeared to have been in her mid-thirties when she was murdered, decapitated while still alive. And further testing determined that a chemical preservative had been placed on her skin. The chemical had not only turned the skin an unnatural red color, but it had also caused it to become tough and leathery. Though officers searched and searched for the appendages as well as the head, no more body parts were ever recovered. At the time, the incident of the Lady of the Lake was considered an anomaly, a singularity. With no evidence and no leads, it faded into the background. Life in the run ran on.
0: Chapter 2 September 23, 1935 Jackass Hill
1: Jackass Hill sat at the end of East 49th Street where it butted up against Kingsbury Run. Two teenage boys with nothing better to do were out when they saw the body. Neither of the two thought about the previous body that had been found in the same part of town, the body that had also been missing its head. The first thing they noticed were the socks. Their mind clung to them for some reason because maybe they were the only normal thing about the strange situation. It felt like the only safe place to look. When the police arrived, they made a few notes. The headless body was relatively clean and had been completely drained of blood. It was naked, save for a pair of socks. When they arrived, the body had been laying on its side, one leg splayed out, covering the man's genitals. They rolled the body over onto its back to get a better look and for the first time they noticed that the body was missing something else. It had been emasculated. They searched and searched, trying to find the missing head and other parts, and as they did so, they found another body. Like the Lady of the Lake, this second body had also been red and leathery. This time though, the coroner hypothesized that maybe the body had been covered in some sort of oil and briefly burnt. The second victim had also been decapitated and emasculated like the first but, unlike the first body which was estimated to have been dead for only a few days, the second body appeared to have been deceased for at least a couple of weeks. Fingerprints came back and the first body, the one wearing only socks, was identified as Edward Anthony Andrasi, a 28-year-old who was known in the Roaring Third. He had been decapitated while alive with the cutting instrument passing through the mid-cervical region with a small fracture in the mid-cervical vertebrae. Another note stated Andrasi had rope burns around both wrists. Edward Andrasi had at one time been an orderly in the psychiatric ward at the Cleveland City Hospital, but had recently fallen on hard times and was doing his best to get by in the rut. Though attempts were made to discover the name of the second body, the 40-ish year old white male was never officially identified and received the label John Doe.
0: January, 1936. The baskets were out of place.
1: The two half bushel baskets rested up against the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue near East 20th Street. A woman approached them, slowly looking around for a possible owner. Nobody eyed her, nobody stared, nobody seemed concerned that she was approaching the baskets at all. She looked around one more time before bending over and removing one of the newspaper wrapped packages. It was dense and heavy. She began to unwrap the paper to find meat. But there was something wrong. She could instantly tell that this, this wasn't pork. It was human. Dropping the half wrapped package, she ran and the human foot bonelessly slapped onto the sidewalk. Ten days later, the rest of the remains were discovered. They had been placed on a vacant lot in Orange Avenue, but as was becoming the case, the head was never recovered. The coroner noted the cause of death, decapitation. He also noted that unlike victims one and two, the two males that were found the previous September, this victim had been dissected after rigor mortis had set in. Fingerprints were taken during the autopsy and the body was identified as Florence Polillo, a barmaid and waitress. She had lived in East 32nd Street in Carnegie, right on the edge of the Roaring Third. And even though police were unaware, and even though the term wouldn't be coined for nearly 40 more years, there seemed to be a serial killer on the loose.
0: Chapter 3 June 5th, 1936
1: The sun had only been up for about an hour, and they were bored. The two young friends were just looking for something to do. Life in the run was hard, but hey, at least they had each other. The early morning light still golden lit up everything in the boys' view. Including the pants. At least, it looked like a pair of pants, but they were wrapped around something strange. The two walked toward the object. Maybe the pants were still good. Maybe they still had some life left in them and were still usable. They picked up the bundle and it was heavy. They placed it back down on the ground and began to unwrap the package. They saw the hair first. 24 hours later, the police finally discover the body that went with the head. The 20 something year old victim had been dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad police building maybe as a taunt toward authorities. Like some of the previous headless bodies that had been found, it was clean and drained of blood. But unlike the previous bodies, it still had its testicles intact. Cause of death was decapitation, which had occurred when the victim had still been alive. Fingerprints were taken from the body and six separate and distinct tattoos were noted. A plaster cast of the face as well as drawings of the tattoos were placed on display at the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936 and still, there were no leads. More than 100,000 people saw that death mask and tattoos, but the tattooed man was never identified.
0: July 22nd, 1936. The teen was making her way home.
1: She had walked through the same patch of woods for as long as she could remember and always felt safe. Well, as safe as she could in a place like the run. Her path was well trodden and she knew every route and every trip hazard along the way. She heard a noise as she walked and noticed movement out of the corner of her eye. Probably just a squirrel or some other small creature flitting about in the trees. But as she looked, as she tried to find the small creature, she noticed something else. Something vaguely human-shaped. At first she slowed down, considered turning back, but she couldn't. She wanted to see. The body was severely decomposed when she got close enough to be sure of what it was. She scanned the underbrush, trying to find the missing pieces, the missing head quickly, her nerves and her bravery ran out and she left telling the first person she saw about what she had discovered. The thought stayed with her though, how many times had she walked right past that body, never knowing it was there. In her dreams, in her nightmares, she was forever followed by a floating head, one that always stared always watched her from the shadows, just on the edge of sight. The 40-something-year-old man found in the woods had been dead for approximately two months. His head, as well as a pile of bloody, cheaply made clothing, was found not too far away from the body. The ground underneath the body, at one point, had been soaked with a large amount of blood, meaning that he had been killed where he was found. Because of the location, it was assumed the man was a hobo, one of the many train riders who frequently traveled through the area. Police tried to ask around about him, ask anyone if they knew him, but he was a stranger. What made matters worse was the body was so decayed that no fingerprints or other evidence could be gathered. Victim number 5 was never identified and labeled as John Doe 3.
0: September, 1936. Hobos were prevalent in the run and the surrounding areas.
1: The train yards were always full of them as they made their way across country. One particular hobo had had his fill of Cleveland and was looking to make his way somewhere warmer before the night started to get too cold. This train looked just as good as any and was heading somewhere that wasn't here. This is where accounts vary. Because of the age of this case and the mythos that surrounds it, there are multiple differing accounts of what happened next. The first one goes as follows. As the train picked up speed, the man tried to match it, grabbing anything he could before he braced himself to jump on board. The ground then shifted under his feet and he fell, his grip slipping off the moving train. He rolled to a stop and got up slowly, checking himself for any injuries that he might have picked up on his fall. Looking back, he searched the ground for what had caused him to trip in the first place. It was a chest. Not a wooden chest, but a human one. He saw where the arms and head should have been, he saw where the stomach and innards should have sat, but they were gone. Just a rib cage wrapped in flesh and skin. Trying not to throw up, he stumbled away into the night to the closest police station. Version 2 of the story is a little less dramatic. It simply states that a hobo noticed something floating in a pool near the Kingsbury Run and notified authorities. In both stories, officers eventually searched the area, resorting to dragging a large pool that was nothing more than an open sewer. In it, they found the lower half of a man's torso as well as the legs, each of which had been cut in half at the knee. As they continued their search, they drew onlookers and an estimated 600 people gathered around the pond to watch. It was speculated that the killer was among them. Coroner Purse took what was left of the body to examine it. His notes stated that he believed whoever had done this knew what they were doing. There were no indications of hesitation marks at all on the body. The killer was confident as well as familiar with human anatomy, cutting the torso cleanly between the third and fourth cervical vertebrae as well as between the third and fourth lumbar vertebrae. He also suggested that the murderer had been able to decapitate the victim using one clean stroke. The victim's kidneys and stomach were also cleanly cut, and the body had been emasculated as well. The sixth victim was never identified.
0: Chapter 4 Fall, 1936. Six disturbing murders had happened in the span of
1: a year, and police had absolutely no idea who could have done it. The Cleveland Press, the Cleveland News, the Cleveland Plain Dealer all reported almost daily on the murders and the fact that police had no evidence and no leads. Fear was growing like a cancer and people were starting to get restless. To try to appease the masses, Mayor Harold Burton told safety director and former leader of the Untouchables, Elliot Ness, to get more involved in the case. At the same time, Coroner Peirce called for a, quote, torso clinic, unquote, where police and other experts could meet to discuss evidence and try to build a profile of the murderer. Two detectives, Peter Merlow and Martin Zaleski, were assigned to work the case full time. They had spent a lot of time in the run and the Roaring Third often dressing as hobos themselves when off duty in order to fit in. The two began to talk to the residents and before the case was defunct, they had interviewed over 1500 people. With November 1936 came elections. The people decided to retain Harold Burton as mayor, but Coroner Peirce was voted out of office being replaced by Samuel Gerber, who not only had a medical degree, but also a law degree. He quickly became the face of the investigation. February 23rd, 1937. Another body was found washed up on the shores of Lake Erie in an area known as Euclid Beach. But for the first time, the cause of death had not been decapitation. For the first time, the decapitation had actually been performed post-mortem. Three months would pass before another piece of the woman would appear when it also washed ashore, this time close to 30th Street. The 20-something-year-old woman was never identified. June 6th,
0: 1937 The warm sun shone down on the young man as he explored.
1: His wandering, meandering path led him down under the Lorraine-Carnegie Bridge, where he continued his exploration. Something off-white caught his eye. It stood out from the other gray and brown river stones it sat next to. He approached it and noticed two dark holes, eye holes. He had found a skull. He moved in closer, picking up a burlap sack that sat not too far from the off-white bone. Lifting the rough material, the contents inside began to rattle against each other like dry sticks. He opened the top of the bag to a musty smell wafting over his face. It was full of… bones. Dental work was used to unofficially identify the woman as Rose Wallace of Scoville Avenue. Other than a June 1936 newspaper that had been in the burlap sack with the bones, there was no other evidence found at the scene. July 6th, 1937 Although times were beginning to look up, jobs were still hard to come by in the area, causing unrest. It became a serious enough problem that the National Guard had to be called in for peacekeeping. One of the guardsmen, while standing watch by West 3rd Street Bridge, saw something floating in the water. Upon closer inspection, it was the first piece of victim number 9. He watched as the body, partially covered by a chicken feed bag, floated in the water being lifted by the wakes of passing boats. Two of the victim's thighs were also spotted in the water. Over the coming days, the entire body was eventually recovered, piece by piece, except for the head. The abdomen had been gutted and the heart appeared to have been physically ripped out. The male victim appeared to have been in his late 30s. He was never identified. April 1938. Another body part is discovered floating in the Cuyahoga River. A young laborer on his way to work saw what he had assumed at the time to be a fish floating on the bank. But it wasn't a fish, it was the lower portion of a woman's severed leg. Over a month later, two burlap bags would be removed from the same river. They contained the upper and lower half of the same woman's torso as well as the rest of both her legs. Coroner Gerber ran a few tests and found something that was an anomaly. There were trace amounts of morphine in the dissected body parts. The question then became, were these drugs ingested voluntarily by the woman before she died, or were they used on her as a way to sedate her? She was never identified, and her arms and head were never found. The bodies and body parts were literally beginning to pile up, and still there wasn't a single useful lead.
0: August 16th, 1938 Because of the lack of jobs, people
1: did what they could to make enough money to try and keep a roof over their heads For three friends, their gig had been collecting scrap from wherever they could find it So they could sell it to the local metal yards They had been working at a dump site on East 9th and Lakeside when They found more than they had bargained for The woman's torso was wrapped up in a man's suit jacket. A double-breasted blue blazer was tightly wrapped around the body, and in turn, that had been wrapped in an old quilt. Further searching of the area revealed the arms, legs, and head. They had all been wrapped in brown butcher paper, which was secured using large rubber bands. The packages had then been thrown into a quickly cobbled together wooden box and abandoned on the lot. When Coroner Gerber began to look at the body parts, he surmised that some of them had appeared to have been kept in a fridge or possibly a freezer. The police continued to search the dump site for more clues, and not far from the torso's location, a second dismembered body was discovered. Looking up, the officers couldn't help but notice that the dump site was directly in view of Elliot Ness's office. It seemed as if the murderer was taunting the old police officer, daring him to do something, to do anything to stop him. Victims 11 and 12 would never be identified. They were just two more of the forgotten people who had ended up in the run.
0: Chapter 5 August Eighteenth, nineteen 1938, AM Just
1: two days after the bodies were found in line of sight of Elliot Ness's office, he and a group of 35 officers and detectives raided one of the larger homeless encampments in Kingsbury Run. Eleven squad cars, two vans, and three fire trucks came to a screeching halt on the outskirts of the camp. The raid then worked south through the run, and 63 men were arrested. When the sun came up, officers and firefighters searched the shanties for anything that might be considered a clue. When they were done, on the orders of Ness, the shacks were set on fire and watched to make sure they burned to the ground. The smoke and the smell hung over the city, yet nothing that had been done ever amounted to anything at all. It was viewed as a desperate act perpetrated by a man who was losing his grip on the law. Shortly after this raid yielded no results, Elliot Ness tried another unethical tactic to try and drum up some leads. He sent teams of men through the run and the Roaring Third under the guise that they were firefighters checking on the safety of the buildings in the area. Because of how run-down and dilapidated most of the structures were, the residents happily invited these officers into their homes and usually gave them free reign of the place. Though these searches disguised as inspections yielded zero results in regards to the case, it did bring to light the conditions in which many people lived. Multiple families were living in single rooms, most of them without running water or a toilet. Electricity was a luxury almost nobody could afford, and many of the buildings themselves were labeled as death traps. City leaders were publicly made aware of the appalling conditions and started projects to try and rectify the situation. But, as always, life in the run ran on.
0: July 1939.
1: It had been almost a year since anyone had found a dissected human body, but the investigation was still moving forward. County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested 52-year-old Bohemian bricklayer Frank Dolezal. He was accused of being the murderer of victim number three Flo Polio, the woman whose remains had been found in baskets. As police investigated further, it was revealed that he also knew two of the other identified victims as well. Edward Andrassi and Rose Wallace. But his confession felt... strange. At some points, it was incoherent, the ramblings of someone who had no clue what they were talking about, and then would suddenly become crisp and perfect giving minute details that only the killer, or the police, would know. In not so many words, his confession felt coached. But before he could be put on trial, Frank Dozel hung himself from a hook in his own cell. More information came out that, like the confession, cast doubt on Frank's guilt. His autopsy revealed he had sustained six broken ribs before he had died, all of which he received while in police custody. To this day, few if any believe that Frank was guilty of any of the crimes. The investigation continued.
0: There were a few
1: more suspects, none of whom had any hard evidence against them. One of these mysterious shadows was Dr. X, a man who was brought in and questioned by police but was quickly released because no evidence whatsoever could link him to any of the crimes. Dr. X, whom many believed to be one Dr. Francis E. Sweeney, was described as intelligent, skilled, and troubled. He lived near Kingsbury Run and was reported to have the surgical skills needed to commit the crimes. Sweeney was a veteran of World War I and part of a medical unit that had specialized in amputations. After the war Francis Sweeney turns to alcohol to try to cope with his pathological anxiety and depression derived from his experiences during the war. He had been through a lot, and was even a victim of mustard gas which caused severe and permanent nerve damage. The drinking he used to cope eventually became so bad that his wife left him. Because of his past and alcoholism and strange behavior, Francis was brought in as a prime suspect. At the time of his arrest, he was so intoxicated that it took 3 days for him to become coherent enough to have a linear conversation. At the time, he was working as a surgeon and it was suggested that he had access to all the drugs and materials he would need to commit the crimes. He failed two early polygraph tests and Ness was determined that he had his men. There was no real evidence to move forward with the case and eventually, Francis was released. He would eventually have himself committed and would die in a VA hospital in Dayton, Ohio, but not before sending multiple postcards to his former tormentor, Elliot Ness. So, was Francis a killer, taunting the man who he saw as his nemesis? Or was he just a deranged person who took joy in egging on the man who tried so hard to pin the murders on him and failed? We'll never know. There were more suspects, more theories. There was Willie Johnson, a man who had committed and was found guilty of a similar murder, but once again, a lack of evidence caused the case to fizzle and die. Murders in the area continued, but there were none like the original 13 that held the city captive for so long. There is little to no hope of this crime ever being solved. According to ClevelandPoliceMuseum.org, all official police records of the case have been lost, destroyed, or removed. All we have left now is story and speculation. There have been documentaries, podcasts, movies, books, and fictional novels written about or inspired by this case, but no matter how many theories or stories are put forth, no matter how many eyes and professionals are brought in, I don't think we'll ever know who committed the Cleveland Torso murders, and we'll never know just who was the mad butcher
0: of Kingsbury Run.
1: This has been another episode of Almost Fiction a podcast based on real events where we try to imagine what it was like in the moments where some of the worst crimes occurred. Join us next week as we look into another crime and try to bring to life the words and the reports. Almost Fiction is a part of 1159 Media. To find out more about 1159 Media and how you can support the show, head over to 1159plus.com. CrimeCon Orlando is less than a month away, and if you are in the vicinity, stop on by because Almost Fiction will be there. There will also be an after-hours meet-up, which you can find out about by checking out 1159 Media's Facebook page. We look forward to seeing you. As always, I'm Chase Ellerman, and this is Almost Fiction.